Um, so we're going to jump into um, the book of Acts today in chapter 19. Um, so if you need a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Um, we'd love for you to keep that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, to take that home. It's a privilege for us to you know, put the Word of God in your hand. Take it. Uh, it's awesome. Um, and this, uh, this section that we're going to be looking at today in Acts 19 is a bit of a prelude to uh, next week. So next week, we're jumping into our, our new series called We the Church. Um, and this is our series in the book of Ephesians, and, and I won't give away too much, but really, that is going to be months and, and if, if months and months and months, literally, we are going to take our time to go through that whole book. Um, we are looking at identity and how our identity as the people of God, as the church, um, how that can be transformative to us, and as we we're just praying, to the whole Bay Area. And something that I've been thinking about with regards to our text today, that many, many people look at the numbers of Christians. Um, you know, well over a majority of people profess to, to adhere to some brand of Christianity. Many people profess to be, you know, born-again Christians. But often people look at these Christians and they say, well, what's different about you? You look exactly the same as me. You spend your money the same way. You live in the same neighborhoods. You do all the same stuff as me. So, so what is really that different about Christianity. And this series is going to help us see that when we live as the church, we are going to live into a radically alternative lifestyle. Um, And as I said, it's something that when it permeates every corner of our lives and our jobs and our families, there will be transformation. And it's something that we need to live out as individuals, live out that identity, and then corporately as the church, great things are going to happen as God uses us. And so you might be a little confused because I'm saying Ephesians, but then talking about, like, well, why are we looking at the book of Acts? Um, and Acts 19 actually is helpful because in this section in the book of Acts, we're reading about, you know, the church and its development and, it, and it, as it goes throughout the ancient Near East. And in Acts 19, we come across a city called Ephesus, which obviously is where, you know, the word Ephesians, these are the people of Ephesus. So we, we encounter that city in Acts 19. And we're learning about what this city was like and and what happened to this city as the gospel went into it. And um, like I said, I don't want to give too much away about the series upcoming, but but today we're going to focus on one aspect of the transformation that the city of Ephesus went through, and that is the subject of idolatry. So today we're looking at Ephesians and idolatry. And, you know, just to do a little quick geography lesson, I I got to do a little substitute teaching for a while, and I thought maybe that's what God was calling me to. And I had this long dream of being a high school history teacher slash soccer coach. I think I really cared more about that. But do a little lesson today. I know this isn't just history, a little geography, but got this handy pointer here, right? Okay. Um, So Ephesus is actually a city kind of on the coast of modern-day Turkey in here. This is the Aegean Sea, and so... This is the area that we're going to be talking about. And you can see being on the water there, um, Ephesus was kind of the principal port city. So for all of, all of Asia Minor, it's kind of the entrance into all of this area here. And so what you get when you have port cities is that, you know, typically there's a lot of diversity because you have people traveling through there. There's a lot of cultures that are kind of smashed together. There's usually a large population there. Um, actually, in Ephesus, there. There were about 250,000 people living in this city. For At the time, that was you know, a massive metropolis. 
And you would also get kind of a, a bunch of the, the pagan religions of that day crammed into that area. And so by some accounts, there were as many as 50 gods that people worshipped in the city of Ephesus. But of all of these pagan religions, there was one chief deity, and maybe you've heard of this, was the goddess Artemis. Um, Artemis, which was also known as Diana, um, Artemis, it was kind of an interesting, you know, they think it was multiple gods that kind of morphed together over time, but, but in short, it was the goddess of fertility, but also the goddess of the hunt. And, and so there's a, I have a little picture here of what Artemis probably looked like. Sorry, that one, got him backwards. Um, so you can see that being the goddess of fertility, the breasts represent the fertility there. And there was also a huge, um, to the other one, yeah, I know, it looks a bit crazy, right? But there was a huge temple dedicated to the worship of Artemis. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so the city of Ephesus was really known as, as the worship uh, center, really, of, of this god. And so we're going to kind of have those pictures in our mind as we um, continue into um, Acts chapter 19. I'm going to go ahead and read it all. Um, sometimes it's, it's nice to have a chunk of text read to you, and especially with some of these pictures in your mind um, that would help you imagine that. So I'm going to start in chapter 19, in verse 21. Uh, or sorry, where, where am I starting? Yeah, I'm starting in verse 21, and I'm going to read all the way through 34. So it's a chunk, um, so bear with me. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must go see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, Paul himself, stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, you may be familiar with that phrasing, but the way, they weren't called Christians or Christianity at the time. Um, many people called the, the followers of Jesus as the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, so picture that um, statue there, uh, Demetrius brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours that it may come into disrepute, but also that the temple, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be um, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they, the crowds, heard these things, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. So there are a couple people with Paul here. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him to not go venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, and for the assembly was in great confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Like a little humor that 
you know, Luke who wrote this book, a little humor he inserts in there. He's like, yeah, they're crowds, but yeah, they didn't really know why they were in there. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, he wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we'll just stop there, and this is God's word. And, and can you imagine, for two hours, being in a crowd, I mean, at least in sporting events, you're you have multiple uh, chants, right? And the PA plays, you know, sing a different one. We're getting kind of bored of that one. Two hours they chanted this. And so today we're going to be looking at um, what is going on here with the city, um, with what is happening with Paul and his people. And, and really, we're going to be looking at what is the issue with idolatry here. And there are going to be three questions that this text answers about idolatry. Um, So the text is going to provide answers to three basic questions about idols, and that's what are they, how to find them, how to destroy them. It's just really simple. What is an idol, how to find an idol, and how to destroy an idol. And so before we get too deep into this, the basic question of what is an idol? Um, Because today I would fail you hugely if you walked out of here thinking, okay, the pastor guy, he said, um, destroy statues and get rid of any little shrines in my place. Um, I don't really have any of those. Just to be safe, I threw away the little Statue of Liberty that like Grandma Jean gave me, but so I'm good, right? Um, But obviously, there's more to it than that. And the text here, Acts 19, it answers the question, you know, what is an idol by giving us some examples, but um, I want to step back a moment before we look at those examples and find just a more basic definition, and that is a place back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Um, some of you might be familiar with this, even if you're not Christians or maybe new to Christianity, you might be familiar with this because this is the first of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first and foremost commandment that God gives his people. You must not have anything in your life that is more important than me. Don't put any other gods before me. And to make it simple, let's have this be our working definition of idolatry today, is that idolatry is anything that is more important to you than God. All right, let's just keep it really simple. Anything that takes that top spot in your life that is more important than God. And I literally mean anything. Um, If we look in, uh, don't look with me actually because I'm going to put it up on the slide, but um, figuratively look ahead in uh, in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, um, there's a really helpful passage there in Romans 1.22. It says that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So this passage, it, it, twice it talks about an exchange that happens. They exchange something else for God. They exchange the glory of God for images of man and birds and animals And it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and that they worshiped and served creature and not creator. 
And that's a, a really important distinction there, and it's something that the Bible makes over and over. There's a distinction between the Creator God and everything else. There's the Creator, and then there's creation. Only the Creator God should be lifted up in that the highest place in our lives, the place of the absolute importance. And anything else in the world is part of creation, and that should not be elevated. But when anything in the created world does go above God, again, that is idolatry. And so now that we have something to work with, let's uh, get back to Acts 19 and help us answer that first question, what is an idol? And the, the text tells us that idolatry, it can be found on multiple levels, right? Maybe you caught that as we were going through there. The first level of idolatry is really kind of the, the simple one that's put right in front of us. There is a false god. There is the idolatry of Artemis, you know, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt, and she was a very specific god. Um, you would pray to Artemis, you would make sacrifices, worship Artemis, you know, when you had a, a specific need that this god can meet. Um, since she was the goddess of fertility, you would likely turn to her um, when you were, you know, planting your crops and you wanted to reap a great harvest and you wanted your crops to be fertile or that you wanted your family to, to be fruitful and multiply. And so you would go to Artemis for fertility, things like that. And why is this idolatry? Well, instead of looking to God to provide, looking to God as a source of life, people here have put Artemis in that place and said, well, we're going to look to this other God to give us these things, life, you know, abundance, provision. They were looking to a false source of life there. And Artemis, it represents this kind of pick-and-choose, um, you know, flavor-of-the-month idolatry that I think is really common in the period here um, because there were gods for just about everything. There were the gods of war and gods of love and gods of work and gods of family. And so any part of your life, you could find a god that corresponds to that. I think we would examine our own culture and see that there's a lot of similarities, right? Specific idols to meet our specific needs. I have a desire for meaning and purpose. Well, I can look to my career for that. I have a longing for companionship. Well, I can look to my friends for that. I have this longing to be loved and desired. Well, I can look to a spouse or a romantic relationship for that. And so that on the one level, there are these kind of very specific idols. But on another level, it's one that's maybe a little less obvious from our text. We find it in verse 25. It says that Demetrius, after he gathered these people together and he kind of makes a speech about you know, the problem with Paul here, he says, men, you know that from our business we have our wealth. We, we can't sit around and let this guy Paul eradicate this, this trade. We make these little statues. We get our wealth from that. And, and Demetrius, he works up this fervor with the crowds here because he shows them, your wealth is at stake. That is their idol there. He's going after their wealth. So for some in, in Ephesus, it's actually the goddess Artemis. For others, it was kind of what was behind that. You know, it represented the wealth for some people. And I think it's helpful to imagine, you know, idolatry as, as a tree, right? Imagine this as a, a grand tree, and out on the branches, at the very tips, you have really specific um, idols. Um, you know, that's where Artemis would be out there, right? And, and as the further you get towards the, 
the trunk and the further down you go to the roots, you kind of surface some of these deeper idols and deeper and deeper idols. And, and eventually until you get all the way to the roots where you find you know, the source of all idolatry is just sin and Satan, right? The one who's the chief idol maker. And I was just talking to somebody about this um, yesterday. I was thinking back on high school, and I was thinking about when I love to, to party and I love to drink. And when I was looking at that, it wasn't so much that I, I only had the, the problem of alcohol, but it was the problem of you know, wanting to be loved. I saw that as I looked at that, that was the deeper issue because, because I would go to the parties and I would get drunk because I was like, man, when I would drink, people would really like me. I was that wild and crazy guy that everybody's like, man, you're so funny when you're drunk. And, you know, and I like love that attention. I love being the center of attention. And so while there was on the outside, there was a very specific problem of partying and drinking, you know, as I dug deeper and deeper, I made an idol out of being, you know, that party guy, being the center of attention. And I needed to be the center of attention because I needed to be loved and accepted. And, and I needed to be loved and accepted because really it came down to it. I didn't believe that God's love for me was enough. That God saying these things about who I was and my value and identity, that that wasn't enough. And so I needed to add on all this stuff. And today, that idol still exists. It doesn't manifest itself in, you know, like it did in high school in the partying, but I mean, I don't know, it's probably around the house, I'm still like, hey, look at me, I need attention. Like, my wife probably gets so annoyed by that, because I'm like, hey, talk to me, look at me, love me. So yeah, you know, I, I still have that longing for that attention and, and to be affirmed in that way. I haven't really tested this with every scenario, but I think you would find that with our idols, um, with these things that we look up to, that you can kind of dig deeper and deeper, and you'll find that there's idolatry at so many different levels. I was just thinking about sex, the idolatry of sex. People have sex outside of marriage for a whole bunch of reasons. But often it's, it's the idolatry of the romantic relationship. See, you have sex because you, you have experienced that it creates some sort of bond, and you love this relationship so much, you're terrified to lose it, and so you want to have sex to make that, that bond even tighter and to keep that relationship going. But you make an idol out of that relationship because you, you think that that relationship is going to make you feel loved and cherished, and maybe you make an idol out of feeling loved and cherished because you think that God's love isn't enough. You don't believe that you are a chosen, beloved, adopted child of God. Or I'll say even at a more kind of carnal level, many people have sex because it's the idolatry of, of pleasure and self-gratification. That we think that that is chief, right? And you dig a little bit deeper of that, and, and it's just the idolatry of comfort. And you dig deeper on that, and it's self-centeredness, Right? And self-centeredness, which says that, you know, my own primary comfort, my own primary experience, that meeting my needs, that's the most important thing. That's the only thing that matters is just really meeting my own needs. And I think many of us, we could do this all day long and, and kind of, you know, explore some of these. And I think with some of it, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, but, but I think there's a lot of truth that as you dig out of the branches, you get closer to the trunk and you will find more and more idols. There's one that Paul gives us here in Acts 19, like I said, wealth. Um, that is another interesting idol because you think about it, it, it's understandably one of the more common idols 
Um, you find in places in the New Testament, you find in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. I won't read those, but, but Paul there in those letters, he actually equates um, greed and covetousness with idolatry. And, and it's understandable because we live in a society where you really need money to function, right? I mean, you have a roof over your head, um, you have transportation, you have food on your plate, you have clothes on your back because you had the financial means to get that stuff. Or somebody was generous to you and they had the financial means. But money is a very telling idol here because the more you have, the more you think you need. And the more it's not satisfying to you. I mean, think about your first job. Maybe you had a summer job and you were living at home. And just think about how much $100 could do for you. I mean, when I was living at the house and I got my first few paychecks after pouring concrete, I was like, rich, man. I was like making $13 an hour. I was like going wild. And I would sit and I'd flip through the Best Buy catalog and I just want to look at all the car audio stuff that I could get in my car because I wanted to be that guy who rolls down the street and everybody's just like, that guy. Yeah, I wanted to be that guy. Never accomplished that dream, sadly. But, you know, but then I think about, well, I had, you know, $500 sitting around. What can I do with that? But $500 now, I mean, what does that get you? I mean, what is $500 compared to, you know, $50,000 of, of loans that you have to pay off for school? Or, or how much does $500 make a dent into your mortgage? And so as the years go on, you can accumulate more and more, but you need more and more and more. I mean, it's so easy to see how money can be above God because the Bible tells us that God is our provider. God is our joy. God is our peace and our security. God is our our protector. Only God can save us. God is the only one that can give us meaning and purpose, but money can actually do all those things on some level, right? Money, Money can get you all of those things. Man, if I want to talk about joy and peace, you know, stick me on a beach for a week, all expenses paid. I'll be pretty happy. And I think it's important for us to see here that that's the scary thing about idols, is that the idol itself isn't inherently bad. See, money is not inherently this evil thing. You know, romantic relationships aren't bad. They're not wrong. It's not bad to have friends or a house or a, or a career. Um, but as you know, the pastor in New York, Tim Keller, famously says, it's when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that is idolatry. See, money, careers, kids, these can make you know, wonderful blessings. They can bring incredible joy to God or to our lives, but they make terrible gods. So let's press on. So we spend a little extra time there identifying you know, what is an idol, but let's turn to the practical now. How do we find them? How do we discover what these idols here? And like I said, this is tricky ground because I don't want to wade into, you know, self-righteous, judgmental, like, you're doing this, this, and this wrong because, like I said, idols aren't necessarily inherently evil. Sorry, these objects aren't. It's that when they become the ultimate thing that they become problems, that they become sin. And so there really has to be personal conviction in this. And I, I would even say, as we go through, you know, this section here, as we ask some of these questions, um, have a note open on your phone. Have a pen and paper out and be thinking, God, if you're convicting me of something, I I pray that I would be open to that. Even if my first thought is, no, that's not my idol. 
I pray that I would be open to just considering, is that something that I need to address? And so be open um, to what the Holy Spirit is, is putting on your hearts now. And so I want to ask a few questions. And the first one comes from our text um, in Acts 19. When Paul is challenging the idols of Ephesus, what was the response of the crowds? In verse 28, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out. And then also in verse 32, it says that they were crying out. In verse 34, it says that they cried out. And that is the, the emotional cry of the people. That is the emotional scream of these people defending their idols. And so what does that tell us about discovering our idols? It, it tells us that, that we need to follow our strongest emotions. Look for that strongest emotion that you have time and time again and press into that a little bit. And in the text here, it says that they were worked into a rage and that they, they rioted. So, so follow, you know, do I have an internal riot, so to speak? You know, do I follow that and, and, and see, is there something at the end of that? You know, what is the thing that you're the most emotional about? You know, what are you the most defensive over? And our, our emotions will often kind of point to our, our idols because, I mean, isn't that the nature of something which is the utmost importance. You know, if it's really important, obviously we care a lot about that. We invest a lot in that item. And think about this. Have you ever thought to yourself, unless I have this one thing, I will never be satisfied? Or maybe it's the other side of the same coin. If I, if I ever lost this one thing, I can never survive. You know, we see why the Ephesians were so strongly opposed to losing their idols because it was their survival instinct that was kicking in. They said, if you threaten our idols, you're going to take away our wealth and we're not going to be able to survive. It's that survival gut level instinct. And now again, a disclaimer that strong emotion isn't bad, right? Because you get emotional about something doesn't necessarily mean it, it's bad. But I want us to, to think about, is there a distinction in our lives between you know, say, sorrow and despair. You know, sorrow is a, a healthy emotion that we experience when there's loss in our lives. Um, when there is something that is valuable to us that is taken from us or something that we had some hope on that it is gone. But sorrow has light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Sorrow has some hope in there. And despair, uh, that is an unbearable sorrow. Despair is devastating. If we have experienced this, we know that despair is crushing to us. And so ask yourself, you know, what causes despair in my life? Do I know that feeling? What brought that about? And as we search our, heart, our hearts, just I ask, can you find yourself thinking that, you know, when I get this, this job, when I get this house, when I get this spouse, when I get this child, when I get X, Y, and Z, only then will I be satisfied. Or the other side of that, if, if there's something in your life you're thinking, if I lost the house, if I lost the job, you know, would I be able to survive without these things? And I'm going to say this strongly because I believe this, that if you follow those paths, you will find idols. And there's a great book that um, Tim Keller, the pastor I mentioned, he has a great little book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. Um, I actually have a copy in my bag if you want to borrow it. I'd happily give it to you. It's a great resource to, to dig a little deeper in this. And he, he tells some stories to open the, the book up about 
some of the, the responses to the, the economic crisis, the, the global economic crisis in 2008. And he talked about all these numerous financial executives who, who lost all their investment and they lost their jobs when mergers happened and, and they, maybe they had uh, resources from somebody else that so they invested that and they squandered it all away. And he says that time and time again there were stories about these you know, financial executives who were killing themselves who were taking their own lives. And he said that the same thing happened in 1929 in the stock market crash. So there was this huge uptick of financial executives and people in that world who killed themselves. And we see that when that is something that you've put all your hope in that object, the career, the wealth, whatever it was for those, those people, I don't know. But when you put all your hope in that and that idol is dashed, what do you have left? And many people feel they have nothing to live for at that point. And those are extreme examples, I know, but despair is an extremely dark place and idolatry is an extremely dangerous sin. And so let's be truthful with ourselves. Let's be bold and let's start digging a little, asking questions about our strongest emotions and and asking God, is there anything that I'm so defensive of that that I, I hate when people tap at that because I've put it ahead of you and I know that? And here I'll just go over this quickly. I have a few other questions from that book, Counterfeit Gods, um, that are really helpful here. Um, Keller asks, when you're not preoccupied, where does your mind go? What do you, what do you imagine? What, do you, what does your mind wander to the most? When you're all alone, what do you think about the most? What, what do you habitually think about to bring you joy? This may be an idol. How do you spend your money? This is something that is very convicting for me. How do you spend your money? Because your money is effortlessly going to flow to the things that you care the most about, right? It's like water always goes to the lowest point, that that's just how it is. Your money is going to effortlessly go to that idol because as Jesus says, Matthew 6, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. So do you spend too much money on, on clothes and accessories and your appearance? Do you, do you overspend on your family, your, your kids? And do you overspend on status symbols like, you know, houses and cars and, man, Apple things? Gosh, seriously. So as a church, we need to be able to discern these idols in our lives. We, we need to be able to ask this question about ourselves because part of our identity as the church, like that's the Ephesians series coming up, right? That we are the church. Part of that identity is that, is that we need to see the, the idols in our own lives because that will help us be able to discern and point out, well, what is the idolatry that exists around us? You know, what does the Bay Area worship? And how can we address that in a loving but truthful way? We've got to be able to start here in our own lives and in this church, right? But, but we practice that here so we can help take that, you know, discerning that skill of, of seeing the idols. We could take that into the world. So um, to our last point, we uncover our idols. But that's not the end of the story, thankfully. Right? There's good news. There's always good news with Jesus. And, and the Bible does tell us how to destroy our idols. Um, the first key to destroying our idols we find in verse 26 here, um, Acts 19, 26. We see that Paul's initial opposition um, about Artemis was that 
Paul was saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And you know, we, we might call this the logical approach. Paul says something very simple and profound about idols. He says, if you can make it with your hands, it's not really worth worshiping. If you can achieve this in your own power, is it really going to be able to withstand your hopes and all your trusts? I mean, that's something that was very convicting for me. I was thinking, if there are things which I can achieve in my own power and my own efforts, I mean, how is that finite thing going to be able to withstand all my hopes and longings and deepest desires? I mean, if I can build my career, and yeah, I completely believe that many of us in our careers that God has called us to certain things, but there are a whole lot of people out there who don't believe in Jesus who have amazing careers, right? That they have built this. They have achieved this. They have done this themselves. And I'm just thinking, if if you can build your own career, then your career is certainly not a worthy God. I mean, if you made it, by definition, it's not God. And someday, you're either going to get fired or change jobs or retired. And what happens when that career is your God? And what if you make an idol out of a loved one? The greatest risk that we have with... uh, Um, idolatry, at least for me personally, but I see this a lot, is children and spouses. Um, Because they're some of the most precious relationships that we have. Some of the greatest blessings from God. But I was thinking about with Alex, my wife, that it is so easy for me to make an idol out of that relationship. To look to her for my ultimate satisfaction and, and to bring me the ultimate joy. But what happens when the day comes when one of us is dead? I mean, that's just a stark reality. If your hope is in that other person, what happens when you are looking at the the burial at the gravesite of that person? Your hope is also buried with that person. And this is Paul's logical approach, that it it makes sense logically that the only thing worth our trust, worth our hope, worth our our longings, our, our aim, the only thing that can withstand that is God. The one who is eternal, loving, all-powerful, all-knowing. Only God can actually uphold the weight of of all of these hopes and desires. And so, a practical piece. How do we promote God and and kind of demote these idols? Well, we had it up uh, earlier. We don't need to put it up again. But Romans 1, I was reading from that. um, And a few verses before that, actually, it says that the reason that the Romans... Uh, or sorry, the reason that the people there slipped into idolatry was, it gives two reasons. It says because even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And I think this is a very practical advice for us to to keep us from falling into idolatry, that, that we, many of us, know God and we believe in God, but do you honor him as God? Do you recognize that you are the supreme, you are the chief, you are the creator of all things? Only you are at that highest point. Do you recognize that God is God? It seems obvious, but it's a really helpful thing to do. And then second, do you give thanks? Because by giving thanks, you're you're constantly reminding yourself that whatever I have came from God. You know, that's one of the ways that I can, I can keep from, from making my wife my idol is constantly be thanking God for her, saying that you gave her to me. She is a blessing. She is a, a, a privilege that I get to be in relationship with her, but it's from you. And that constantly keeps God on top of the object. If you say, this came from you, God, thank you. 
And it's a bit of a paradox here or a kind of a contradiction because really the best way to be productive, successful, happy human beings is to put God first, not ourselves, not our idols. Because the best way for us to be husbands and wives and friends is actually to not make that person the most important thing. Because when you make that person the most important thing, they are going to be crushed by the weight of your expectations. And then when they disappoint you, you are going to be crushed by them. You can actually be a better friend, a better spouse when you put God first, those relationships underneath that, because then you have the freedom to, you know, my hope is in God, but I'm free to love and cherish this person. The best way to be a good worker, to advance your career, is not to put your career first. It's to make God your focus. And when God is your focus, you can approach your career with a certain freedom, with a certain lightness. You could take risk because, you know, I could fail in this. You know, I'm going to take some risk. I could fail in this, but my hope isn't in that. And even when it's really scary and I haven't seen a paycheck for a while, I'm putting my trust in God. Now let's close with this. The, the text here, it's not explicit, but the text, it gives us a, a final clue here of how to defeat idolatry. Um, I didn't read through the, the rest of the narrative, but, but we saw the beginning of Paul and his, the Christians that he was with, the companions, that they, they attacked an idol of the city, right? They attacked Artemis, and, and they attacked the wealth of these um, silversmiths here. And what was the response of the city? Well, they were furious, right? The, the silversmiths, and, and it sounds like all the people in the city got really worked up about this. And they approached Paul, and they even, it says that they got a couple of his companions, and they dragged them into the theater. And you don't know what's going to happen with them. You think, are they going to be killed? Are they going to be stoned? I don't know what's going to happen. But if we keep reading this, we see that Paul and his friends actually weren't harmed by the crowds. In anger and violence, the crowds, they wanted to destroy these men. The men who attacked their idols, they wanted to respond and and attack them and to destroy them. But the text tells us that they were not killed. The Bible tells us that Jesus opposed the source of all idolatry and the chief idol maker, Satan and sin. But when the crowds rose up against Jesus, he did not survive. He was crushed by the crowds in Luke 23 we read, it says that the crowds all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And Pilate addressed the crowds once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And it says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Jesus was crushed when he opposed the source of all idolatry so that we can face our idols and not be crushed. That when Jesus was raised from the dead, we see that he was victorious, that he accomplished exactly what he set out to do, to defeat the source of all idolatry, sin and Satan. And we know that the victory of Jesus didn't mean that the end of idolatry happened because we still wrestle with this, right? 
But it is now a battle that we can win because if we oppose our idols, we might face that violent resistance. There's something inherently violent in this text about when you attack an idol, there is great opposition to that. Because our sinful nature knows and evil knows that there is nothing easier for us to, to kind of be peeled away from God than to put something in front of us that is really good but isn't God. And that we kind of laser focus in on that. But victory is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. And, and I was just, imagine it like this. When Jesus was crucified, there was a great earthquake. Uh, Matthew tells us that. There was a great earthquake that shook all of Jerusalem. And when there's an earthquake, you know, sometimes there's a lot of destruction that's obvious. You know, buildings crumble, statues fall down, structures break. But often there's damage that we can't see. You know, sometimes the buildings and the structures, they'll stay upright. They, they look perfectly intact, but their foundation has been destroyed, right? The, the, the structural integrity of that building is, is, you know, because of the cracks and the chips and the movement that the building is no longer sta- uh, sound. And imagine it like this. Imagine all the, li- or all the idols in your life as these statues, standing tall. But what you can't see is that their foundation has been damaged beyond repair, Right? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, their foundation has been destroyed. They have been shook to their core. And now they are possible for us to knock them down. That we can approach the idols in our lives because of what Jesus has done. And we can say, you don't rule me. I'm going to put Jesus in the chief place in my life. I'm going to put him on the throne because only in that will I find fullness and joy. And only he can withstand all my hopes and expectations. And I need to take down these idols. The death and resurrection of Jesus has finished this. It has completed this. And it's a battle that we still wage. And like Paul, there are going to be violent crowds that oppose you when you oppose your idols. Make no mistake of this. But we can have the victory because Jesus had the great victory. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to be reminded that what you did on the cross It was finished. You defeated sin and death and it was done. But we are in battles daily and we know that sometimes these these battles can seem impossible to overcome, but we know that because of the work that you did on the cross and being raised from the dead, we live in a new reality where our idols, they may appear impossible to knock down, but we know they're not. Because you took out the chief idol maker and the source of all of our idols with sin. And so I thank you that we can live into that reality. Just give us the strength to do that today and tomorrow and the day after a little bit more. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.